Well, good evening. Good to see you tonight, and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. It's good to get it started back after the holidays, isn't it? It really is good. to. I enjoy Wednesday nights and enjoy taking a book of the Bible and studying it in depth, and that's what we're going to be doing on every Wednesday night here at 615 in the Worship Center. We just finished Revelation, and uh, that was a, a wonderful study. I really enjoyed it. Hope you did as well. And now we're going to the Old Testament version of Revelation, the book of Zechariah. And I think that you're really going to enjoy that. We'll, tonight we'll look at the introduction of the book because so much of understanding the book hinges on the introduction. So I never downplay the introductions to the book. So tonight we'll look at the introduction and chapter 1, verse 1. And then we'll pick up with chapter 1, verse 2 next Wednesday night and keep, keep going through the book. So we're glad that you're here. Let's pray together and ask God's blessings upon our time this evening. Father, we want to thank you for your uh, infallible word, that is your inspired word, inerrant word. And we thank you for it, Father, and pray tonight as we study your word together that you would, your presence would be here among us. God, those joining us online, that your presence would be wherever they're joining us from. And Lord, I just pray as these coming weeks, as we look at Zechariah, give us wisdom and insight into what you want us to know from this powerful book and give us understanding through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, tonight we're going to set the stage for one of the great Old Testament prophets. There are 12 of them, and this is number 11 of the 12 in the order as you go through the Old Testament, but it's a powerful book, and we're going to talk about the book and a little bit about the, uh, the prophet and how it's broken down. Give you some background that I think will help you to understand Zechariah much better as we go through it. As I mentioned, it's pretty much considered the Old Testament version of Revelation because you have so many visions and dreams and, and so many things moving and, and symbolism that mean different things. And so tonight we're going to set the background for all of that. And hopefully, as I said, bring greater understanding to you. First of all, letter A on your outline about the book itself. Let's talk just a little bit about it. I've entitled a study, A New Day for God's People. A New Day for God's People. Because you're going to see in just a moment, they thought their glory days were behind them and Israel would never be the same again. So God raised up a prophet, priest. He was a priest and a prophet both by the name of Zechariah, raised him up to let God's people know there is a better day coming. That your, your greater glory is going to be better than your previous glory. Now, I think that's important because for us today because so many people are forecasting the death of the church and the death of Christianity in America. That's, as you know, that's kind of been forecasted that the glory days of Christianity are behind us and, uh, you know, America's on the down, down decline and, uh, you know, churches are on the decline and, and we hear a lot of that. And so a lot of what Zechariah's saying really does, I think, apply to us because I don't think God is finished with the church. I don't think God's finished with Christianity in America. And so I believe that, that there are glory days ahead of us, but we have to do what God tells us to do. That's what Zechariah tells him. What, what do you need to do in order for God's glory to return? So a new day for God's people, kind of what I've entitled it. And Zechariah is a book that not only encourages the Israelites, it challenges the Israelites. 
You're not right now where you need to be, he said. Get where you need to be. No more excuses. No more excuses. Get where you need to be, and you'll see the glory of God return among your people. So, that's a good word, as I said, for us today. It encourages the Israelites to rededicate themselves back to God again. I know many of you have had times in your life, recommitments of your life that were very meaningful. I, I have in my life, whenever I went into ministry, it was a meaningful time of recommitment. I was a believer, but it was a very meaningful time of a recommitment in my life that changed things, uh, that I stuck with, that, I, that really changed things in my life. And many of you have had times of rededication of your life. Never discount those because they are challenged in this book. You need to rededicate again what you've already dedicated once to God. So, if nothing else, see these weeks of Zechariah as a time, maybe of recommitment in your own life, of rededication in your own life. It's the start of a new year. Uh, it's a good time to rededicate, recommit yourself to some areas of, of God's, uh, God's work in your life. And they, they were encouraged to rededicate their lives. Zechariah, as he wrote, saw his role as restoring Israel after the exile. Exiles when they were gone away into Babylon. I'll talk more about that in a moment. So this is known as a post-exilic book. If you see that anywhere, simply means it's a book written after the exile was over and the Israelites had returned back home. Now, a couple of things that are of note about the book. One is Zechariah was a close companion of Haggai. The book right before this, Haggai, Zechariah, they're together uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, but they're also together in their ministries. Haggai, Zechariah, you see them closely connected. Now, both of these men are mentioned in Ezra. Ezra chapter 5, 1, Ezra chapter 6, 14 mentions Haggai and Zechariah together. They both ministered at the same time period in Israel, but their roles were a little different. Here's how one theologian described it. If Haggai was the builder of the house, Zechariah was the interior decorator. So if Haggai returned after the exile and said, here's what you need to do, Zechariah came along behind him with visions that were colorful and, and, and he built in, into the house color and meaning and artistry and tapestry. And so Zechariah was the more flashy of the two. He was, he was the more picturesque of the two, the more colorful. And so we're going to see in his visions the color come out of what God was telling his people in a dramatic way. So we're going to have a dramatic book that we're going to be covering over the course of the next uh, uh, several months, looking at it chapter by chapter through the 14 chapters of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah had eight visions. They are from chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 6, verse 8. Eight visions. They weren't dreams, they were visions. What's the difference between a dream and a vision? Dream happens when you're asleep. Vision happens when you're awake. So one night, he received all eight visions. He didn't sleep all night. The night was February 15th of 519 B.C. How do you, how do you know what night it was? 
because we're told. He tells us in the passage. It was the 24th day of the month of Shabbat, which the Jewish calendar corresponds to our February 15th of 519 B.C. So he remembers the night. And there's significance to the night. I'll tell you in a moment. But one night, he received all eight visions at once. Now, it took him two years to preach it. Sounds like a preacher, doesn't it? Eight eight-week sermon series or eight-month sermon series took him two years to preach it but he received all eight visions one night when he stayed awake all night so he then preached them started preaching them a few months later December 7th of the year 518 BC is when he started preaching them how do we know because he tells us it was the ninth, it was the fourth day of the ninth month of the Jewish calendar, Kislev. So we know that's December 7th in our calendar. So we know exactly when he got the visions and exactly when he started to preach them. My question was, why so specific? If somebody tells you tonight, you know, I remember it was February 15th of 2004. You're going, to be, you're going to be thinking, why do you remember such details? I mean, why do you remember the day? So why did Zechariah tell us, I received eight visions on the night of February 15th, 519 B.C.? Well, a couple of reasons. The Israelites would have well known February 15th in their minds. If someone were to say to you, July the 4th, that's a significant date to Americans, isn't it? You don't have to explain. July 4th, ah. 9-11, you don't have to explain. You know. So when you said 24th day of Shabbat, all Israel's knew. All Israelites, they knew. Significant. Why? When they returned back from exile, that was the day they began building the temple. They started the beloved temple, rebuilding it. This is the day we started and not only that, a few months later, it was the day, or a couple of years later, it was the exact day Haggai started preaching to them. So they started rebuilding on the 15th of February. Then Haggai started preaching 15th of February. And so that's in the minds of the people. So when Zechariah shows up and says, it was the 15th of February. And at night, I received eight visions from God. That would have perked the ears of the Israelites. Wow, God must be saying something to us. So it was significant whenever he said it was the 24th day of Shabbat. Now, something about these eight visions. We'll talk more about them in detail, but here's something I find interesting. These eight visions were, in Hebrew, what's called a chiastic structure. Now, that just simply means it's a teaching device. And it goes from greater to lower to greater. So imagine you're in an airplane and you're looking down at the earth from 36,000 feet and you see the earth, see the land. And let's say that the plane then starts to dip and you get a little closer and you see the country of Israel. And then it dips a little closer and then you go to Jerusalem and you're looking down upon the temple. 
And then the plane lifts back up again, and you look back, and you see the country of Israel again, and you get it back up to 36,000 feet, and you see the earth again. Those are the eight visions. Starts up here with the nations. Peace. It gets a little closer. It talks about Israel. It comes down closer. It talks about the temple, and then it starts to pull up the other visions. Then you see Israel at a distance again, and then it ends with the nations. Peace. Ends with peace. Begins with peace. And so these eight visions are what's called a chiasm. Start off high, get lower, get more specific, pull back up again, and then you see from a distance. And that was a teaching device that the the Hebrews employed. These eight visions are like that. We'll talk more about those when we get there. That's a little bit about the book. Let's go to letter B on your outline, the background. Let me share with you the background because the setting of Old Testament prophecy is very important. You may have heard this before. Bear with me because we need to repeat it. All of Old Testament prophets, the 12 prophets that are listed in the Old Testament, have the same background. God's people, the Israelites, had sinned against him. They worshipped other gods. They, They transgressed against the law. And they always wanted to be like the other nations around them. They they didn't want to be unique. They didn't want to be the unique people of God. So the other nations worship more than one God. We want to worship more than one God. The other nations have kings. We want to have a king. They always wanted to be like lost nations. You and I are going, why on earth? But we want to be so much like the world, don't we? So they wanted to be like that. So they worshiped other gods and they did the things that transgressed God's law. So God sent spokesmen to them to tell them, you got to stop. Those spokesmen were prophets. Prophet, the word prophet means foreteller, someone who would foretell the people what they needed to do. And this, the prophets came and warned them, if you don't turn back to God and repent of what you're doing, judgment's going to come. And judgment is going to be in the form of an invading nation coming in, conquering your land, and taking your beloved homeland from you. The people didn't believe them. Why? Well, think about what they thought. God promised Abraham the land. He's not going to take it back. That's ludicrous. We're not going to lose our land. God gave it to us. He doesn't break promises. And not only that, he told us he would never leave us and never forsake us. He's tied to this land. We won't lose it. And God said about Jerusalem, that's my city. I put my name on it. He's not going to take that back. No one's going to come in and capture that. So they didn't believe the prophets. They thought they could sin all they wanted to. And God would never bring judgment because he promised them the land. And he said he'd always be with them. Well, sure enough, it happened. 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded what they thought would never happen. Invaded the borders of Israel, burned, killed, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the the walls, destroyed the temple. His dad, most historians believe that his dad 
became in poor health and, and died. And so Nebuchadnezzar took his troops and went back to Babylon, but then returned the next year in 586. So that's why you'll see the destruction of Israel as 587 slash 586, because Nebuchadnezzar's dad was dying and he went back home came back and finished the job, and the Israelites were then, many of them were killed. Many of the Israelites were carried back, though, to Babylon to live as captives. It's known as the Babylonian captivity, and they'd lost their homeland. Everything the prophets said would happen, happened. Some of the prophets went with them. Jeremiah went with them and lived with them in captivity. And they stayed there 70 years. 70. It's a long time. It's a generation and a half, almost two. So after 70 years, another power than Babylon began to gain strength, Persia. They moved in and captured Babylon in 538 BC. And so now the Babylonians are overthrown. The Persians are in control. So the Israelites are under the control not of the Babylonians, but of the Persians. So whoever was captives of Babylon became captives of Persia. Now, the Persians had a different policy of dealing with captives. Babylonians thought you keep those captives under your thumb. They'll rebel if you don't. You, you have to keep them, as, I mean, tired in the day. You work them hard. They're slaves and they won't rebel against you. Egypt felt the same thing. Persia was different. Persia said, the happier you make your captives, the better life is for both of you. You don't have to expend energy and armies to keep your thumb on them. As long as they know who the boss is, let them do what they want. As long as they're not organizing to overthrow you, let them do what they want. So, the Persians said, Israelites, you want to go back home? You can go back home. So, in 538 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Israelites to return to their homeland, and after 70 years, they were thrilled. But there's a problem. Nothing's left. They get back there, there have been 70 years worth of charred rocks laying around. Your city's gone, your temple's gone, your, your land is gone, your, there are no crops, you're nowhere to grow crops. You have to start literally over. The worst experience possible in the ancient world happened to them. That's what they have to go back to. So where do you start? Well, Ezra told them, when you go back, the very ta first task one should be rebuilding the temple because your relationship with God is vital. Build it before you build anything else. You haven't been able to sacrifice and have your sins forgiven for 70 years. Build that altar back where you can sacrifice again and meet with your God again. So build the temple back, number one. So they did. They started building the temple. But they got discouraged. They laid the foundation, and they rebuilt the altar so they could again alter, offer sacrifices, but they got discouraged and stopped. And they stopped for 20 years. 20 years. It's stopped. Why would they get discouraged and quit? Well, several reasons. Number one, it's hard work. You don't have anything else. You're, the rest of your life is in shambles. 
it, it's hard work. And not only that, there are nations surrounding Israel. They discourage them. Why would they care if the Israelites rebuilt their, the, the temple or not? Well, think about this. The nations that surrounded Israel, every time they jumped on Israel in the past, Israel would, would appeal to their God, Yahweh, and they'd defeat them. So in the minds of the neighboring countries, they thought, if we can keep Israel from worshiping that God, Yahweh, we can, keep, we can always beat them. But if they start worshiping Yahweh again, they'll beat us. So they discouraged them from rebuilding the temple. So for 20 years, it lay in ruins. Got the foundation, got the altars built. But they stopped. Enter Zechariah. Zechariah shows up and gives them the message. Number one, your best days aren't behind you. They're ahead of you. But number two, you've got to keep building that temple. You've got to keep constructing that. You've got to build this so you can continue to meet with your God. And your God's and your relationship with your God is central to who you are. So you need to get back at it. And that was the message primarily of Zechariah. Now, let her see on your outline the date in which he ministered. You're going to see as we study the book that chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 14 are set, they're totally different, separate sections. So a lot of people say Zechariah authored 1 through 8. We don't know who authored 9 through 14 because the writing is so different. I have no problem with Zechariah writing all of it. Because God can inspire the same man to write in two different ways. That's, that's not a problem. But you'll read a lot of that. Is that chapters 1 through 8 or 520 B.C. We have no clue when 9 through 14 is. But I think Zechariah wrote them all. And we'll talk about them more as we go along. Let's talk a little bit, a little bit more about the man Zechariah himself. Letter D. Zechariah the man. Zechariah was interesting because his... The name Zechariah was very common in the Bible. Thirty people are named Zechariah in the Bible. Did you know that? There are 30 different Zechariahs. Very common name, especially a common name for priests. He was a prophet and a priest both. Only two other prophets were that, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But the name Zechariah meant something, and the Israelites would know this. It means Yahweh remembers why would that be important you thought God's forgotten you you've been in captivity 70 years you thought it would never happen God has forgotten me there may be some of you tonight thinking God has forgotten me he doesn't know what I'm going through it seems like I can't, I can't talk to him he doesn't listen when I pray and it seems like maybe to many of you God's forgotten you but just the name Zechariah is a reminder God remembers you. That'd be important to them. Now, think with me here. If the Israelites return back to their homeland in 538 B.C., we know because Zechariah tells us he started ministering in 520 B.C. That's 18 years. So 18 years after Zechariah returned is when he started ministering. Now, we're told in chapter 2, verse 4, that when Zechariah started ministering, he was a young man. Okay? So if 18 years later he's now a young man, 
How old would he have been when the Israelites returned in 538 B.C.? He'd have been about that tall. So, Zechariah, most likely, is just a toe-headed little boy holding on to his grandfather's hand, Ido, who was a priest, making the trek back from Babylon, 1,200 miles back to Israel. And he was there as a little boy watching them rebuild that temple. And he was there as a teenager watching them stop because they got discouraged. And so Zechariah would have been there. He would have been there for all of it. Because 538, he was a young man in 520. Most likely he had been there the whole time as a little boy. How did he die? Well, Jesus may have told us. If you go to Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus is pronouncing the woes upon the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes, and woe to you, Pharisees, and woe to you, Sadducees, and woe to you, religious leaders. And in one of those woes, he says something interesting. He said, woe to you, scribes, you're always killing the prophets. You've shed innocent blood all the way back from Abel to Zechariah whom you murdered between the altar and the temple. So most likely Zechariah preached for 14 chapters and they didn't like what he said and they murdered him in the temple courtyard. Now there are some theologians that say Jesus was talking about a different Zechariah but he said Zechariah son of Berechiah which we see in chapter 1, verse 1, is his dad. It's him. So keep that in mind. He was killed by the people at church because they didn't like his message. So that message is what we're going to look at in the coming days. Now go to letter E on your outline, features of the book. Let me tell you a little bit about this. Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. Now, what do I mean by minor prophet, major prophet? Well, a major message and a minor message. You know, the message is just simply the, the length of their book. A major prophet is one whose book's long, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And a minor prophet is one whose book's short. Not that a message is minor. It's not. It's a, it's a major message. But of all the minor prophets, the shorter books in the back of the Old Testament, Zechariah is the longest of those. 14 chapters, 211 verses we're going to be looking at. And it's so difficult to interpret that for a long time, Bible scholars thought it, it was impossible to interpret. So we're going to be doing, over the next few weeks on Wednesday nights, what many scholars have said couldn't be done. And that's to understand Zechariah. In fact, Scholars in the Middle Ages, Jewish scholar Rabbanel said, quote, It is so, Zechariah, so obscure, no expositor, no matter how skilled, can explain it. Another Jewish scholar, Solomon ben Isaac, says, It is a prophecy so obtruse that we will never know its true interpretation until the teacher of righteousness comes. So, Zechariah has been viewed as a book impossible to understand. But hey, we waited through Revelation, didn't we? So we're going to be able to do this. 
And so we're going to be able to, but scholars about 1700 on realize, no, you can, you can understand Zechariah, but just to let you know, it's a difficult book to understand, but we're going to break it down. I believe that we will be able to understand it. What's the theme? The theme of the book is they continue to build the temple. Don't get discouraged and your better days are coming. So stop this procrastinating Stop this defeatist attitude. Stop this woe is me and get back to doing what you know you need to do. That's a good message, by the way, to a lot of people today, isn't it? Stop this defeatist attitude. Woe is me and get back to doing what you need to do. And the second thing was your God's glory is going to come back. Israel's glory is, is not gone. The, in fact, the greatest glory, the Messiah is coming. And he talks about the Messiah. So that's pretty well what he talks about as he goes through. Let's look at the style of the book. Style of the book is pretty interesting. A lot of different styles in Zechariah. Some believe that along with a prophet that he was a poet. Because in Zechariah, we're going to see some poetry. In addition, you've got sermons, you've got exhortations, you've got visions, you've got symbolism, you've got oracles, you've got apocalyptic literature. Now, those of you who went through the Revelation study or What's apocalyptic literature? Remember? We're going to have to go back over it again. An unveiling. Something that's hidden, apocalypse, is unveiled. And you have that in Zechariah, an unveiling. Now, here's one of the things that's interesting about Zechariah. There is a very close connection between Zechariah and the New Testament. Zechariah has the clearest and largest number of references to the Messiah of any minor prophet. He's going to prophesy some things about Jesus. You're going to see very specifically. It's called the miniature Isaiah, in fact. Chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah is the most quoted section of the Old Testament in the Passion Narratives. That's Jesus' death, burial, resurrection in the Gospels. Jesus quoted Zechariah 13, 7 when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember whenever Jesus is in the Garden, he's sweating drops of blood, and, and he tells the disciples that the, whenever the shepherd is struck, the sheep would be scattered. That was a quoting Zechariah. And so Jesus quoted Zechariah several times. In fact, chapter 14 alone, just the last chapter, Seven passages in just 14 alone where Jesus quoted and saw his role fulfilled as the Messiah. Seven times in just chapter 14. F.F. F. Bruce uh, giving lectures, 1968, Fuller Theological Seminary, lectures entitled The Shepherd King, was the first to note how Jesus saw his ministry through the eyes of Zechariah. Because he saw himself fulfilling the Messiah as Zechariah said that he would. So chapter 14 has seven by itself. Now, let's look at the outline of the book right quick, and then we'll look at chapter 1 and we'll close. Let's look at the outline of the book. First of all, chapters 1 through 6 is a call to repentance. Number 1 is a call to repent. One of the strongest calls in the Old Testament for God's people to repent. And folks, I, I don't think there's a message that America needs, especially Christians in America need, more today than repent come back to where you know you need to be stop believing what the culture is trying to teach you and try, stop trying to reinterpret the Bible 
to mean what you want it to mean rather than what it means and say what it, you know, stop ignoring passages. Repent and come back to the truth of Scripture. We need to hear that. They need to hear that. And so we'll talk more about repentance next week, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Number two, you have those eight night visions. Chapter 1, 7 through verse, chapter 6, verse 8. And we'll cover all eight of those visions of the chiastic structure we talked about. Number three, crowning Joshua as the high priest. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah and Joshua had a running battle. And we're going to talk about that when we get there. But uh, who won out? Some people say Zechariah won. Others say, well, Zechariah was murdered. So maybe Joshua won. But we'll talk more about his crowning. And Zechariah talks about it. Uh, in in chapter 6. Number 4, fasting and the future. There are two chapters, 7 and 8, talk about fasting and the future. We'll talk about that. And then uh, uh, number 5 there, you'll see in your outline, chapters 9 through 11, the advent and rejection of the Messiah. It's Jesus. He predicted that Jesus would come the first time and be rejected by the Israelites. But then look at number 6, chapters 12 to 14, the advent and reception of the Messiah because he's going to come back a second time. The second coming appears, chapter 9, verse 10 through chapter 10, verse 12. It appears he's talking about the second coming of Jesus as well. So you have in 9 through 14, the advent and rejection of the Messiah and then the advent and the reception of the Messiah himself. Now, let's look at chapter 1, verse 1, and then we'll close says in chapter 1, verse 1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido. We'll stop there. We'll get into what he says next week. But let's, let's look a little bit at what we're told there in verse 1. Notice that it begins very specifically. He's very specific. In the eighth month, second year... He goes, he gets, and then he gets even more specific later on in verse 7. He's very specific on the dates, and that's important. Now, the eighth month, what would that be? That would be correspond to our October, November in the Jewish calendar. In the second year of Darius, who's Darius? He was the Persian king. So why would he reference something about Israel in terms of Persia? Because there's no king in Israel. There's no king. You've got to reference it somewhere historically if you want people to say, hey, this is when it happened. And usually a lot of books will say in the second year of Jehoshaphat or the second year of Hezekiah or something like that. In the other books, there's no king to reference. There's nothing going on historically. You can put a, you can put a mark down. And so he just marks it by the Persian king where they just come from. In the second year of Darius, the Persian king, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet. Didn't call him a priest, even though he was a priest. His daddy was a priest, the son of Berechiah. His granddaddy was a priest, son of Ido. Now, critics of the Bible look at verses like verse 1. And they say, see there, the Bible's not accurate, and you can't, it can't believe, it, it contradicts itself, because they say, how can you be the son of Berechiah and the son of Ido? Both. You can't be the son of both. He's got one dad. How can he be the son of both? 
But in Hebrew, the word for son, ben, B-E-N, like David Ben-Gurion or Ben-Yehuda, or, it simply means son of. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, David the son of Gurion. So the word ben meant son of. But it also, Hebrew does not have any word for grandfather. It uses ben. Same word. So ben could be son, grandson, stepson, all of them are the word ben. So it's not a problem in Hebrew that Zechariah is called the son of Berechiah and the son of Ido. Berechiah was his dad and Ido was his grandfather. So you could see both. Now, Berechiah probably died whenever Zechariah was young, what scholars believe, because you never hear of him. Ido was a very famous priest. Ido was a priest before Israel was captured. He was a priest in Solomon's temple. And then Ido was carried away to Babylon, 70 years. And then Ido, the grandfather, was the one that was holding little Zechariah, his grandson's hand, on their way back. And Ido became a priest after he even got back, before he died. Ido was very well known among Jews, but nobody knew Berechiah. Why would they know Ido, but not his son? His son was a priest. So most scholars believe he died young. And it was actually Ido that raised Zechariah. Because Ido was the most famous. It would be like, for example, Will Graham today. His grandfather, Billy Graham. I mean, William Franklin Graham is famous. But Billy Graham was more famous. And so Will Graham, the grandson, would be the son of, grandson of Billy Graham and the son of William Franklin Graham. But in Hebrew, he'd be called the son of both. And his grandfather is more famous than his dad. So that would be the case with Zechariah. But initially, it establishes credibility. You knew my granddaddy. You knew how much my granddaddy loved you. And you knew how much my granddaddy loved God. And that's why one of the reasons I believe he stretches out his lineage past Berechiah to the beloved Ido. But he stops there. He didn't go any further than Ido's heritage, does he? But that establishes credibility in the minds of the listeners immediately. God's word came to Billy Graham's grandson. You'd most likely listen a little better, wouldn't you? So that's, that's why he said, the son of Berechiah, but the son of Ido. So, as we wrap up, Zechariah is a book filled with hope. The people needed that desperately. Eight visions, four sermons, two oracles. God will remember you. and He'll keep his promise. And your better days are ahead of you. But to get to the better days, get busy doing right now what you know you need to do. What a great message for them and a great message for us. We'll continue with the chapter 1, verse 2 next Wednesday night. Have any questions or comments, you can see me afterwards, email me. I'm always glad to respond. Let's pray together and we'll close. God, I want to thank you for men like Zechariah that you called that the word of the Lord came to. God, who was unashamed to speak to the people what you told him to speak, even though it cost him his life.
And Father, I just pray that the words that he spoke many, many years ago would ring true to us as we, as we study the book of Zechariah in the, in the weeks to come here on Wednesday nights. And God, I just pray those words of hope and those words of challenging, the words of asking us to rededicate our lives would come to us just as loudly and just as clearly as it did to the Israelites. So Father, speak to us through the pages of this book. I thank you for it. God bless it in the days to come as we study it. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.